Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, thanks very much for coming. Now, most um, music writers tend to think of themselves as uh, battle-scarred and uh, war-torn. But uh, our guest tonight has been um, hospitalised in pursuit of a great story and carried out feet first, in fact, from various assignments that she's uh, conducted. And uh, her life is full of immensely fascinating personal and professional insight, which is now contained, excitingly, in this book called I'm Not With The Band, um, which I understand has actually just knocked Bruce Springsteen's pre-orders off the number one slot for pop and rock on Amazon. She's now bigger than the boss. boss. (laughs) Take that. So please welcome the fantastic... Sylvia Patterson. I might also say that this book could be described um, in a language she helped invent at Smash Hits as both swingerillant and uh, and poptastic. So fantastic. Well, Sylvia, what I wanted to start with, or we want to start with, was um, as a, a picture of your um, of you as a child. Now, obviously, you expect the book to be That's full a lovely of. Bit. It's lovely. You expect the book to be full of, um, you know, uh, your encounters with Beyonce and Madonna and U2 and Led Zeppelin and everything, which we will come on to later. Mm. But there's an amazingly fascinating subplot about your relationship with your family and particularly your mum. Yes. And your mum, unlike my mother and David's, um, was a, an alcoholic who finished up in jail. So, <laughs> so this is quite a strange... Uh, so tell us a little bit about the family that you came from. In some ways, it's very fitting, isn't it? It's, yes. It's, it's, I sometimes used to think in another life she might have been Keith Richards. You know, she very much wasn't Dyson to add. She, she was a she had a, a spirit about her, but she became a very unhappy woman. Maybe when I was about maybe eleven or well, eleven, I think, was when the troubles began. She became the kind of drinker who didn't have any joy in the drink. It took her to her bed, where she wailed and was abusive and. Just, I didn't understand because I was a child, obviously. I had no idea what was happening, but she was a, a desperately complicated <clears throat> and quite um, remote person. I think it was generational as well because my parents were actually war generation people. My dad was a prisoner of war. She nursed him back to life when she was, I think, a 17-year-old nurse. He was 27, coming back from the prisoner of war camps. 
she lost three brothers when she was young, things like this. I didn't know any of that apart from my dad's life <clears throat> until um, maybe I was about 30. I didn't really know what happened to her. But nonetheless, there, there was this woman who was lost to me. There was a normal mum and then there wasn't any more. Um, and from about 11 till, till I left home, I just... There's an, there's an alien in the house. The, the, anybody who has any dealings with alcoholism in their family will understand if it's the kind of person who becomes an entirely unrecognisable entity to you, how frightening that is. And you can't do anything about it. You just have to somehow absorb it and get on with it. But my escape from all of this was obviously music. And I think it definitely had a massive... Um, well, that's where I find my the family that I that I trusted, that I could believe in. That's where all my um, peace and, and security came from, if you like, was through music. And I think that's what made me an absolutely insanely um, uh, obsessional music person. It started then, I would say, definitely. I think that's the case for a lot of people, Did too. you originally set out to to write about her, or was that something that you were persuaded to do? Oh, not a chance was I going to write about anything to do with myself for many years. Um, Because I had the idea for the book a long time ago, and and, and everyone said, this will never work unless you actually write about yourself. And I said, I ain't doing that, Um, because I'm not famous. But the publisher's view tends to be that unless you understand where the person comes from, you won't understand I think that's more and more so now as well. You know, I couldn't, I mean, I don't think people can actually get away with just, just perhaps doing anthology so much anymore. They want to have the narrative arc. And it's just become part of part of the culture now that, that you have to, you know, just be real. The, the, you know, if, if, if there is any uh, chaos, and the chaos is real for, you know, for most of us, let's face it, then, um, then, then just see if that can actually give me some kind of a context. And to be perfectly honest with you, it made the book a much... A, a much a much more human book, it's rather, it's rather it's than, really and then I met Johnny Cash, because who would care? Absolutely. Who would care, you know? But so, so yes, very early on where you work at DC yeah. Thompson, where you, you hate the job so much, you're going into the office with a can of beer. Oh, yes, I thought this Did you at this point ever think you might be turning into your Absolutely. mother? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I thought, well, this is it. It's me, it's me. I think any child of an alcoholic always feels, and if you quite like yeah. altered states, if you like, which I always did, yeah. I think you always fear that you're next, the baton is passing to you. Yeah. But my experience of you know, um, well, booze for me made me incredibly happy. It made it, it gave me an escape. It made me actually. Uh, it, it was part of the music experience as well. Whereas for my mother, it was straight into the hole. Yeah. She never got any joy from from that. Where my dad did, who was drinking half of the drink, so she she wouldn't have to. She wouldn't be able to get it, kind of thing. My dad was a great drinker. He just became a, a singing man who loved his music. Yeah. And, um, but no, for her, it was straight into some kind of very inexplicable torture to me. Why she did that to herself it remains a mystery to me. She never went into any kind of therapies and things. She went to, to A in the end. Um, and well, she was very frail by it. I think it was in the early 60s by the time she stopped completely f- for most of the rest of her life. And she went to jail, in fact, because she... And we'll get on to smash hits and stuff in a minute. But it's quite, she went to, <laughs> there are locks she, she to come, to, I promise. No, no, no. But she went to jail because she was repeatedly ringing up for ambulances. Anybody, right? any, yeah, anybody who watches, um, in, um, was it 999 Your Emergency, I think, which, which can be a great show, you'll see that this is something that, that I didn't really even realise at the time. Um, if you continually phone the emergency services, you are that, that's a menace to society misdemeanour 
Because if someone is lying in the middle of the road having been run over by a bus and someone is just in an alcoholic state of psychosis at home, you're taking an ambulance off the road. So you have to have these rules in place. Yeah. So she was basically done for that. And she would have been 61 or something. And they put her in prison. The woman was mentally ill. She was a serious alcoholic. She was desperately unhappy. My father had died. She was a widower. She was very lonely, all those things. And they just took her away and stuck her away for three months or so. But it is the thing that made her stop drinking. So jail works for some people. <laughs> what can I tell you? So just for background, where, where did you come from? Perth on the east coast of Scotland. And what did you do after school? I went straight to work for um, a dreadful magazine called uh, Annabelle, which was... This is D.C. Thompson. This is D.C. Thompson. D.C. Thompson was... Yeah, the main people here are not Scotland. familiar. D.C. Yeah, Thompson, yeah. an institution in Scotland. Well, Jackie Magazine, the Beano, Urwilly, and all those things. Yeah, yeah. Huge employer. That's how you got... Dundee yes, and that's, so that's where you were when you applied for the job at Smash Hits, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, it was, because in Scotland at that time, um, because Thatcher men had destroyed um, Scotland, there were no jobs being given to really anybody at all. So for me to actually find myself being given a job somewhere in the media when I was 18, I just took it. I went, I won't bother with further education. I'm being given a chance. I'll take the job. So you got a job at Annabelle when you were 18? Yes. Was that a good thing? It was. It, it eventually became a reasonably good thing in as much as I had some experience, I suppose. But no, I had to do this. My very first editorial um, position of uh, power, if you like, was um, editing a, a week, monthly section called Crisis in My Life. And um, I had a massive post, post box of um, all these dreadful scenarios that happened to everyone in Scotland, you know, children falling out of windows, um, you know, cancer, all the, you know, suicides and all this kind of thing. And I had to pluck the best, worst story, <laughs> give it a headline, do the sub-editing. And that was my very first experience in the, in the world of magazines. And I had a huge, gigantic 1983 Mohican at the time and I had to disguise it and wear my flatmate's clothes and all this kind of thing because I was unacceptable to DC Thompson's, obviously. And it was just... It was it was very bizarre. Transferring my shits all the time, obviously in the enemy. So this was the dream job. We've got a cover here with one of my favourite smash hits um, cover lines ever, which is Corky O'Reilly. It's Kylie. So I think it's fantastic. I remember us being in the um, in the room where you put the. well, you put the cover up. Can you remember? Well, you guys obviously will remember, will remember these this world. We had a piece of cardboard with the... You used to project. The logo. You projected, projected it on, yes. You onto the wall like, and drew around yeah, it. Yes, exactly. What are we going to have in there? I think we were struggling, to be honest. Kylie, because Kylie never said anything about anything, did she? Kylie was, bless her heart, she was very sweet. You describe her in the book as the famously vague Tinkerbell. And she is, <laughs> she is to this day. She's very sweet, but there's not a lot to get to grips with in terms of what's the cover line going to be. So, yes, that was, uh, that was struggling. <laughs> we, we, when we were at Smashes, back in our day, it sold about, I don't know, 250 or 500,000, roughly the time we left. But you know, during your reign, it sold a million. So what, what were the factors that contributed to that? Bob Fallon was obviously very, very good and very funny. But what, what was it, that, that, that unique alignment of the planets that allowed magazines to sell a million copies? It was such a bizarre combination, you know, because, I mean, the Socket Come and Waterman people were absolutely gigantic to the very, very young and so that had its own momentum in terms of just selling, just selling to the 11-year-olds, but also the 16, 17-year-olds were really responding to the absolute absurdity and the anarchy that was going on on the inside of the magazine, 
which was um, created by, as you all know, Tom Hibbert and everybody that came, that came after yourselves. Tell us a bit about him. We know very, we knew very Tom well. Hibbert was the, the um, uh, assistant editor when I first applied for the job. He was the person who, who interviewed me for the job. And <laughs> can you imagine him? Yeah. <laughs> no, idea. Hibbert. Hibbert was a, a light. psychedelic individual. <laughs> Have you got he a was... light? This will be his first question. <laughs> Have you got any scotch in your bag? That'll be a second question. That'll be it. <laughs> he was trying to, to talk to me about who would you really love to interview, Silv? Oh, I'm not really. Um, I'm not really. I just think I was trying to be cool or something. I don't know. But I just couldn't think of. I really don't know. And he said, "Madonna, Prince, he is mad." And suddenly I realised, no, no, I'd really love to talk to the House Martins. I'd really love to meet Stan. He's my hero. And and Hibbs thought this was obviously quite funny. Bless him. Um, but yes, there, there, there was so much. The, the, the older teenagers were responding to it at that time. So you had this just twin prong, this this double helix going on of the very young and the quite sophisticated older teenagers. And it just combined into this explosion of, of, of just success. <laughs> Not that we even particularly considered the success at the time because we weren't obsessed with numbers or... We were just obsessed with having a really good laugh is is what it is more than anything else and and, 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 and but that's what what you guys started anyway yeah, and that's the, and the it smash it's journalistic uh, ethic really was was to try and get beside the behind the facade or whatever they, they might have erected and find the real amusing entertaining normal person behind that was i guess the reason you asked the questions you did the, well, exactly. uh, have you ever felt like a roundabout and have you ever been sick of the company what's the one you you asked um it, have you ever been sick down your cleavage? That's right. Isn't that, wasn't that one of the classic... Beyonce, that was desperate, though. Yeah. I was desperate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just the, how can I, how can I find a human response from the hologram that is Beyonce? She's not a hologram now, but she was then. It was just idiocy. It was idiocy. And what about idiocy. the Mick Hucknall moment? There was a, a, a moment where you oh, clearly set your cap at Mick Hucknall. I, you know, I was a huge Simply Red fan, actually. Um, to me, they were quite, you know, they were... You know, money's too tight to mention, and you know, Capitol Hill and all of this. They were very politicised, and he was punk rocker, obviously. Um, but I met him, and uh, it was an hour in a record company. This was no big deal, and I fell in love with him, didn't I? Oh, how embarrassing. Um, so I decided that he, um, because he talked to me extensively about the fact that he'd never been in love, and um, and and he'd never even really said the words "I love I'll you," and I thought. That. I thought, can you not see me with my stupid hair? Can you not see me? I'm the one. So I actually deigned to find out where Simply Red were um, playing the following week. Booked my own flights and paid with my own money to go to Edinburgh where they were playing um, and took a room in a bed and breakfast, went to his hotel, had the copy of Smash It's that he was on the cover of, which I was very proud of, my very first Smash It's cover, and sat there in the lobby and waiting for him to come in. And indeed, eventually he did. And he just took one look at me and I went, <laughs> I thought you would like to see this. Oh, yeah, thanks very much. And he just bolted straight past me into the hotel room. And it really is, I mean, no one really knew what a, you know, what kind of a crumpeteer the man actually was at that time. But I was surely the only propositioning woman in the whole of the 1980s that he didn't want to sleep with. <laughs> so I was, no, you took it and very I slipped off to the hotel, yeah. a single little divan bed in, in a B and B in Edinburgh, and just cringed. I'm cringing still. <laughs> uh, That's very good therapy oh, to, to, to tell that yeah, story. It's the only time I ever did that, by the way. 
we put this in with that partly because there are some groups who seem to leave absolutely no impression at all. I don't know if I'm just imagining this, but, but do people still talk about bros? I don't think they do. Are they on the radio? No, they're not. They, they do. Are people um, Or are they just transparently awful and we've forgotten them? Well, you see, there's a certain kind of... Uh, the gays were very up for bros, the gays. Um, there's some women who, who really loved... Uh, Matt Goss, who who now is a big star. Remember that he's going to be a big star in um, in, in Vegas. Oh, right. So he has a huge following that in, in that really cheesy um, supper club, sort the, of cabaret. club, exactly yeah, that yeah. kind of a world. I mean, he, he has he has made a very successful life for himself, but he was always incredibly boring, Matt Goss. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. You well, made, I think you made the point in the book that I'd never thought about it before that bronze were, were not sexy at all. No, they were because they were far too clean. Yes, they were crisp and clean, and they were like their whole head had been ironed. They were they, they were just all ironed people, and and there was just there was I mean it was the start of this incredibly clean pop era. It was bizarre to me actually. Much, I, I mean I mean the opposite really of what had happened in the first big eighties pop boom, which would have been the Durans and Spandau and and. and Frankie for kind out loud. There's nothing crispy, you know, crispy and ironed about them. But this lot were just incredibly. Well, well look at them. <laughs> do you know, what I mean? they were just, they were just squeaky. Everything what do, what do we call squeaky. the one on the left? Craig. What was <laughs> he calling Ken? Ken. 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 Because he was a Ken, wasn't he? <laughs> he was the non-hunk. So, you know, once Smash Hits decided you were going to be called Ken, you were called Ken. That was, was it. You know, the power of it. You know. Yes, and the once viewers just ran with it every time. You they know, it was a good joke, they ran with it. Tony Hadley is still Tony Foghorn Hadley. Yes, exactly. I did that in 1981. <laughs> yeah. I call him that to this day. Yeah. yeah. I have called him that to his, to his face. Paul, Paul McCarthy's Paul still wacky macker thumbs a lot. Yes. It's extraordinary. To That's this day. Thing. He must curse us. <laughs> you specifically, or was that his? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's there's a there's a kind of a, there's a huge change, isn't there? Happens here between you know Bross and Britpop and so forth. And, and what's weird, yeah. you know, I mean, they split up, I think, in '91, and they were in Smash It's by '91. So that's a very um, strange old line there. Cause but we... isn't there a connection? There's always this, I think, generation. It's a cycle, isn't it? That the, the next stage, musical stage, is usually a complete reaction to the one before. Yes. I mean, Britpop must have been, to some extent, a reaction to Stock Aitken and Waterman. That credit. I think, to be honest, it was... Um, because the, the, the Stock Aitken and Waterman fans were very, very young, it was grunge more than anything yeah. else. Because <clears throat> the, the, the early 90s, to me, were an appalling time for music. It was all the Americans had taken over. Um, there was. The, the, so we talk about mud honey, people like that. Yes, I mean Nirvana. I didn't even. I didn't even think that they were any good myself. It was just a bunch of miserable, stinky boys, um, you know, on Prozac, and I didn't want that. I wanted a party, you know. I wanted. Uh, I wanted, you know, glamour and fabulousness. And along came the Americans with their shirts and their misery. And they're, you know, you know, I can't sell more than three copies, otherwise I'm a sellout man. I mean, this was just no good to me at How all. How do you describe no it in the book? You said it went from being feel my pants to feel my pain. Well, that's exactly what did happen, <laughs> yes. That's exactly what did happen. And I remember a lot of people, um, not just me and my friends in London, but I think it happened all over the country, that there was a huge going back to the past at that point, back to the 60s. And the 70s, I mean, that's the first time that I would have discovered a lot of people who are in your book, Dave, actually. Yeah. Um, I suddenly was listening to 
Well, I mean, I mean, all, all, all the big greats that punk rock or punk or post-punk as well had told me were absolutely useless. All the old hippie <laughs> stuff, man. So suddenly I, it was Neil Young and it would be Joni Mitchell and Carole King and all those things. And I found that absolutely... So I, I just literally just snipped myself out of everything that was contemporary. And the weird thing is that what was happening with a lot of the Britpop people to come, like Jarvis, Noel as well was listening to the, to, to the past as well. It kind of came out of that. I don't know why there was a synchronicity there in terms of we all just went back to the classics and the greats and just ignored America and all that kind of thing. But, but Britpop certainly was a reaction somewhere to, to what America was forcing on us just because of the, the, the sheer size of, of of these bands because they were taking over and Pearl Jam, please, you know. Please. No, I couldn't be <laughs> forced with that. I was on Select at the time and we had to put those kind of people on the cover and it was mortifying. But the, a picture of Blur before us. I mean, uh, you expect your heroes and pop stars to act a certain way and you were obviously miserably disappointed by meeting Damon Albarn. He's one of the few people in the book who you feel is a real letdown. In fact, he described him repeatedly as an arse. <laughs> What, 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 I think of the best words. This, this theory that he's an absolute because ass. you know the others were lovely. By the way, Damon was um, he had that dreadful thing in a human being, which is called he he, he, he was an intellectually superior, um, condescending arse. That's the, it. Really, is the only kind of he hated smash hits and everything that had ever been and everything that probably ever became. Um, he was above it. He was above it. And he was petulant, he behaved like a teenager. The others tried their best because me and my buddies at Smash Hits, because we were all indie kids anyway, we were desperate to make these people stars. We did our best. You know, they did pretty well themselves by the tunes being in the charts. But we really, um, you know, tried to do our best with just, oh, we're just going to make them into a poster, we will do all the things that, the, that surely you would want to do. And Damon was just because he just took himself incredibly seriously. I was and addicted this to heroin. Again, our lawyers will allow us to say that too, well, which I think might have been news to, to me. Actually, I wasn't aware. This, of that. this this news broke in about 2012, I think it was um, something like that. But, but yes, I remember talking to him in about 1997. Of course, I was a huge Oasis person, and he was so rude about the Gallaghers. It was unbelievable. On and on about how thick they are, etc. And I didn't appreciate that at all. And his eyes were just spilling over with. What I thought was just a kind of bunker spliff, to be honest, but it was the smack. <laughs> but he managed to keep that from the press, and fair enough. You know, it didn't do him creatively any harm. He always said that it made him quite productive. <laughs> well, do you think he's a productive guy? <laughs> having, having encountered lots of pop stars over the years, do you think it's uh, amazing that they managed to keep things like that secrets still? Oh, absolutely, because I, I really doubt that you could now. I doubt that you Well, because know. of social media? You just... Who can keep anything from anybody, really, I think? I um, suppose so. But I don't know how... I do not, do not know how he managed that, especially because there was such a... a condemnation, rightly or wrongly, around what happened to Justine, if you remember. Yeah, I mean, yeah. all of Elastica were, were given a really hard time about that, and he was in the background, and he was exactly the same. And he never stuck up for her... Or never spoke about it, and I think that's when I think about it now. That's at the very least very odd. But I suppose you know, what happens with with success is that so many people are kind of invested in you, aren't aren't they? The record company, the media, everybody. Nobody wants to spoil the the party by pointing out. Yeah, I think. Oh, I think especially with a drug like that, it's it's, it's not rock and roll. 
you know, too many dreadful things have happened to too many people for that to be in any way a, a, a party scenario. And it did ruin a lot of people. Some people in the 90s never came back from that, you know. Um, yeah, that wasn't, there was nothing, there was nothing Britpop about that particular scenario with him. But it was the case with him, which is bizarre. It is bizarre. This is, this is a, an interesting Sweet. point, I think, because I, I, I can't <laughs> imagine this. Actually, don't you build a, a shrine to Liam Gallagher in your flat? <laughs> Yes, I did. You and, and, and then he turns you and Lisa up Daniels. Your, turns up Lisa in your Daniels, flat. yes. That's right. And then he turns <laughs> up in your flat. You're desperate for him to not see the shrine <coughs> he built in your room. Well, what can I tell you? I mean, the, the, from 94 to 96, I was lost. I was an oasis person, and I, and, and I just gave myself up to the... Um, to celebrating the euphoria of life, which is how Noel describes the entire purpose of Oasis in the first place. And I did do that thing. It was just... It was just euphoria. And in 1996, by that time I was living with my friend Lisa Daniels from Smash Hits, and we had a, a fly-by-night um, flatmate who was the brother of the guy who was the managing director of Creation Records. He was never in. We, we saw him four times in six months kind of thing. Well, one night I went out and got absolutely, I mean, and I swear, real food poisoning. Came back in about 11 o'clock, threw up everywhere, gym jams in the bed. And then at four o'clock in the morning, woke up to the sound of an incredibly Mancunian voice, a very deep, very sweary Mancunian voice in the, in the living room down below. And I thought, my God, he's brought no back. And then I heard, Patsy Kinsey. I thought, oh my God, it's actually Liam. And this is 1996, and I have a shrine to him, like a grotto. Fairy, fairy lights everywhere. I mean, it was the most beautiful photograph of him you've ever seen, his gigantic eyes. I loved him, and he was downstairs shouting about Patsy Kinsey, doing cocaine in my living room. I'm covered in sick. The, the, the sink is filled up with sick to here. Like, what if he comes up to the bathroom? <laughs> I thought, and obviously I cannot now go down and introduce myself to him. For a start, I work for the NME. If he knew a journalist from the NME was upstairs with her ear on the floor like this, he would have obviously catapulted himself right out of the room. He did eventually when the words Robbie Williams came into the room and obviously him and Chris Abbott just took off out the door looking for the next stash because there was none in, the, uh, <laughs> none in my flat or in my sink of sick. But, but yes. Is there going to be another real. mass movement like that again? I kind of think that was the last great. I think um, it might be. I think it know, We could be really wrong. Maybe we don't know. Going from nowhere to football <laughs> stadiums and their fans like football supporters. You know, I, I mean, music was still the biggest show in town, wasn't it? You know. Yes, it was. Can we even consider the the, you know, the, the Libertines as the, as the as the last one? But it was never going to be like this. No. I mean, it probably was the last time twenty years ago. Now, bonkers. It's a long time. I mean, it is. It really is. So this is another fantastic chapter in the book where you spend all this time with uh, Richie, Richie Manick. I can't even remember his real name now. Richie Edwards, was it? <laughs> Richie Manick. That's right. And uh, did you... What was your impression of the world that had evolved around him and his ability to deal with it or, or not deal with it? You know, I don't Because he died was... or disappeared very soon <clears throat> after you. Yes, yes. I mean, the Manicks arrived in 91 with um, Motown Junk, didn't they? And they, when I, it was a, they, I was at a, a music awards with them in um, uh, Dublin and they were kicked out because they got hideously drunk. And the next morning, which was great fun, by the way, the next morning, only Richie could make it downstairs to do the interview. And he actually bothered, because he loved Smash Hits, he bothered to talk to me for four and a half hours. And, I mean, I mean when would that ever happen now? You know what I mean? So, over bless him. Um, but he just wanted to communicate to the Smash Hits viewers. He did a, 
massive reading list for them, all, all the books he thought that they should read, which sadly I lost. <laughs> he also told the Smash Hits readers they should kill themselves by the time they got to 13, by the way, which clearly we couldn't write in the magazine because... I guess that you didn't can, you imagine, that can you imagine the Twitter storm? <laughs> 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 because after 13, you became an adult with adult obsessions like money and... Um, status anxiety, which wasn't even called that then, but you know, be, be, you, your free thinking and your and, and the joy of life was gone by the time you were thirteen, according to to Richie. He really was the kind of person who it wasn't fame that, that did him in. It, it really was. He just was one of these people who just can, who feels just far too much of the planet. He had, didn't have any faith in humanity. He didn't think that men and women were compatible uh, beyond having sex because you just get bored and you move on and then it's just heartbreak and misery. He just always saw the misery. But he was very funny as well. He was funny. My favourite moment of that interview, well, four and a half hours long, was when he said... And I wish I could do the accent, but I won't bother. He said that he'd met the guy from, uh, I think, a guitar player in a band called The High, who were like Britpop also rands. And, the, and this person was trying to talk to him about some guitar solo on uh, whichever record it would be, Motorcycle Emptiness, perhaps. And Richie just looked at him and said, I don't play any of the guitar on the album. James plays the guitars on, uh, on the album. And he just looked at him and he said, there ought to be a union to stop people like you. <laughs> As if, as if this man was about guitar solos, yeah. you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Incredibly admitted it. This was when you joined... Uh, um, I, I love your description of pop. I think you described them as, as slumming Sheffield misfits. Well, And you've got well. this brilliant way of summing up groups. You two are, are <laughs> po-faced rock whinging. <laughs> and Cocteau Twins, I think, are, are blubsome... Esperanto yodelers or whatever. That's you them. Yeah, but this was the time. I mean, I don't know if we got this chronologically right, but by this stage you joined the enemy. What was the, what yes. was the kind of culture on the enemy like? Because it was yes, obviously totally. bouncing back. What was it like in the office? And what, what, you know, what was the, what was the world like? What were the people the like? Yeah. Well, thankfully, it didn't go in that much. I mean, it was, it was, um, you know, it was, it was very blokey, but not, not, not blokey, blokey. In Who a, were the blokes? In a, ones we will remember. Who would you know? Steve Sutherland was the editor. John Mulvey was the, uh, I think, features editor. I'm not sure Ted Kessler was still there. Um, Barbara Ellen was just about to leave, I think. Um, but I was never on anywhere near the stuff. I hated going in, actually, because they just didn't make... They, you know, it was a bit of a wittier-than-thou club, if you like, which is the way it is on all nights. Like you had that at the, en- the enemy, exactly, Mark. I say, it's not, nothing all that much had changed. Probably they weren't as witty. To be honest. The least relaxing place I've ever been in my life. Yeah, it's weird. Why is that? Intensely competitive, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. And I wasn't really interested in interested in the competition between the between the writers. I like to be uh, just a, a kind of free spirit on my own. I like to just do what I had to do and then and then just get away and and. and you talk about yeah. I think you first submit a piece to the enemy, and uh, it's slightly too long. Yes, I did, and the. Um, Features editor, um, just took one look at me, and, and, and it, was, it, was, it was with the cramps who I absolutely love, the huge heroes of mine, and I think it was 127 words over length, and he just said, "Oh, fuck off, fuck off, and get out of my life." And lovely Johnny D, who worked for Smash Hits for a while, came running down the corridor because he was working for them as well. And said, "Don't listen to him, Phil. He's like that with everyone." And of course, I boohooed all the way home on my on my bicycle. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to go back in there with that lot. Do you know, I was just rude. But he was like that to everyone. 
You see, you did apologise at one point. I can't. I already have! (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, not pleasant. Pointless, actually, that kind of behaviour. That never happened on the hits. Who would ever behave like that on the hits? No, not at all. You know? Not at all. David and I were talking about the Happy Bondies uh, uh, earlier on, and and it's interesting that in the 70s, everyone thinks that's the great moment of of excess, you know, when there was just limitless cash. And over expenditure. And in fact, in some ways, it was actually the 90s, you know. I mean, Mike Flowers Pops. Does anybody remember Wonder Wall by Mike Flowers Pops? It came out in 1997. It was a 12 inch single. It's, it retailed for £4.25 and it sold wow. 750,000 copies. So it probably doesn't work now. So you know, can you imagine the amount how much of that cash? one record made? And there's a lot of business where you go away when you must tell us about the Happy Mondays because they fascinate me. But you went away with them and uh, in the Caribbean or something and spent three it months was getting when a become, it, was, it was when they'd become Black Grape. Oh, this, was the, um, this was their return to the Caribbean having completely and utterly ruined factory records by the non-productiveness of Yes, Please, the album. And they just absolutely just lost their minds in every way. They, you know, they, they came back um, with no lyrics. The great lyricist... The WB8s of his time had come back with absolutely no lyrics. The tambourine sound, it was, it, nothing existed. Factory folded. They um, came back to the Caribbean in 1994 or five, I think it was, as Black Grape, which was a ridiculous thing to, to, to happen because why would you send them back Absolutely. There? <laughs> send <laughs> so them to the Caribbean. Yes, That'll sort out that really work worked the last time. <laughs> you know? So there they were. They did actually do some work. Um... Bez was exactly broke, as you would expect. He was all over the water place. Water skiing, isn't that right? Was that the time he broke his arm water skiing? All the calamity happened on, on that first trip, I think yeah. about 92 that was, yes. He bust his arm in so many places, he had a big, well, like a piece of scaffold, right. scaffolding or something, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So they were reasonably well-behaved, but, but nonetheless, their version of well-behaved was gins and massive hip-hop level spliffs at 7 o'clock in the morning. Bez there took me to a reggae... Breakfast reg- of champions. Oh, yes. He took, me, he took me to a reggae rave. He'd lost his shoes. He went smashing through a glass uh, wall that he thought was fresh air, basically. He got into a van, smashed his head off the lights, choked on something he was eating, vomited out, out of the window, tried to roll a gi- giant spliff, lost the money that he had, borrowed $40 from me. About 10 minutes later, lost the $40, lost his shoes, and I'm you know, in the care of this person because the PR failed to turn up to the trip at this point. And, um, yeah, so this was, this, was the, the, this was their, you know, sensible year, if you like. <laughs> but at least they managed to make a video and actually finished an album at that particular but, time. Do, do, do you think when these things are occurring, this is great copy, this is fantastic? Uh, well, you just, think, well, you just think, well, this is certainly the kind of chaos that we all believe rock and roll should be about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know? Wouldn't happen nowadays. No, no, it wouldn't. Well, if that was you going on, wouldn't be let anywhere near it. No, exactly. You would be half an hour up a corridor or something, or well, would these guys even be given the chance to go back to the Caribbean and make it and and have a laugh? Probably not, because it's you know where's the money going to come from? Everything's risk averse and all that stuff. They just probably just wouldn't send them. So in the nineties, are you getting jetted around to do all kinds of stories like this? America, obviously, uh, well, America is the place that you would usually go. I didn't go to too many places that were as they had never been there before, and I've never been there since. So um, it's five-star hotels and business class travel? and Not quite the business class and the five-star, no. Normal class, and then a jalopy through Kingston, 
Right. No, I just meant generally. You know, those days. Beautiful resort. There was. They were making so much money. Beautiful resort. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you got people like the um, the beautiful South. I mean, I mean, those those guys were actually worse than men. Can you believe the beautiful South were the most hard rocking band I've ever spent any time with, and that was the nineties. There's a lovely bit where you're Insane. sitting on a plane with Paul Heaton and he has a game called, is it called Peanut, Peanut Golf? Peanut Golf, that's right. Peanut Golf. Peanut brilliant. Golf, we're on a plane and we've drunk, been drinking gin since half past seven in the morning and I can't cope because I'm not that hardcore. He is. Um, and he was, this is my favourite game to play on a flight. You wouldn't get to sit next to the lead singer like this anymore, by the way. It would never happen. Um, I'm looking up here, I've got me bag of peanuts and I'm looking for a bald pate in the front to see if I can land the peanut on the green of this man, you would be arrested. The plane would be diverted. <laughs> you'd be, you'd be such an trouble. Air rage incident. Yes, yes, exactly. a no-fly order. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> well, look, this is a major contrast because there's a bit you described American stars, uh, Michael Jackson, Madonna, and Prince as being um, as bewitching aliens. You know, it's a, a really good point, I think, because British stars, you tend to think. They're never that mysterious, possibly with the exception of David Bowie. Because yes. you think you might bump into them in Regent Street or in Selfridges. Or well, you also Doncaster. know where they came from. And you know where they you? come from, you understand that. <laughs> You've been to Doncaster or Bridgeton. Yeah, completely. Yes. Whereas Prince, you know, is, is so mysterious, or was. In this, when did you interview him? Interview him in the late 80s, was it? It was 80... No, sorry, it was 96, actually. 96. And was a gigantic star. Yes, he was absolutely enormous. Um, obviously, it wasn't quite his heyday musically, but nonetheless, because he he was the definition of the of of the other on his um, unknowable plinth, he was that thing. He never he, he had never done a press conference in his entire life at that point. Never once through the eighties. He did a, a few interviews, not very many, but this was his very first global press conference. And the, the, all the European press, press were there. The Americans. And he deigned to talk to all, everyone all together for 15 minutes. And then a miracle happened. And he decided that he would talk to a handful of the... I think it was mostly the European press for half an hour each. So I suddenly find myself pinged in to um, for an audience with this... Uh, with, with, with exactly the kind of person you would hope Prince to be, which was to say he was beamed from another dimension. He was covered in glitter. He was one foot tall. His hair he was, was powdered. Love. He was powdered. He was so beautiful. His eyes were his eyes were almost bigger than he was somehow. I mean, it was just he was just. And he had such a deep voice. Do you like my house? Is the first thing that he said. Is the first thing that he said. And then he said, I like my shoes, and I nearly fainted. It was fantastic. But he was very gracious. Is that his wife? I'm not sure. Have I got I the think right that's girl? The, that, that's, I, I think so. I think that's she, the... Doesn't she appear at some, some stage of the interview? She, um, she walked into the um, uh, interview room and, in, in silence, and he just, um, just said something like, I'll be finished in ten minutes. I mean, something very boring, actually. Yeah, to say it, but, um, very prosaic. Just, they just glimmered at each other, and then she kind of glid off. <laughs> they were just <laughs> gliding people. But he didn't say much, did he? He's he. All he wanted to speak about was uh, his contractual freedom away from the Warner Brothers that that, that made him um, become a slave to, to to the machine. So he was newly free. And so that was his only point of conversation. Um, and he was saying that he no, he no longer was interested in, uh, you know, sex and drugs and being an egomaniac and, and all this kind of thing. And, um, and I had to remind him that he actually is the man who once said, 
because he was the purple perf to us, you see, Mark. Oh, I, who, never, who, I never wasted a Who dubbed him the purple perf first? Because, I mean, it must have been, it was long yeah, before I, I got to this. Yeah. It was you guys. Yeah, it was So I had to remind him that he was the purple perf, obviously. And he once said, I never waste an erection. And he said, yes, that's right. I said, I never let an erection go to waste. So what do you do with an ill-timed one these days? And he said, well, I just find so many other things sexy these days, like freedom, and went back to his message. Oh, but he was very gracious. And, uh, and he was... He, there's a, there was a twinkle about him. You thought, you're not taking yourself actually as seriously as I thought that you would. A bit, bit bonkers. Why did bonkers, they let you tape record? You, you weren't allowed to tape record the conversation, were you? Can you imagine? Yes, but exactly. Why, why, you have why half not? an hour and, and, and you have a... You like the, and you're just... Mm, mm, and, of course, the writing is just like an insane doctor. I mean, and then I had to take that home and write 5,000 words up. <laughs> Five thousand words. I could not. Do but he, that well, now. you see, the truth is, you could have made it up totally. I'm sure you've yes, made a certain amount of it up, and he wouldn't have minded at all because it would have saved him the trouble of having yeah. to say anything. Yeah. In the first I mean, as, if he, as if he was going to bother reading it. And when journalists you know? do make things up, they always make things up that are really flattering. <laughs> well, this is it. I think well, exactly. the pop stars there's don't complain because they love to rock, uh, rock journalists making up really good quotes to and make them seem better. God, I wish I'd said that. Yes, because if you go to yes, because if you love them or if, if they're incredibly um, charismatic or funny or just fascinating or insane or whatever it might be, you come away and you think, "I'm going to make everyone fall in love with them as much as I possibly can because I did, and it's brilliant, and they are great, and we want them to be great." It was never about destroying Not someone unless it was one of the arses, if you like. But no, it was much, much more about us actually polishing up their acts for them. Yeah, it's yeah, the truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> this is. Just, this is just interesting because this is a, 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 a hero of your whole family. So we're going back yes. to your family again. Yes. You talk about the the, uh, the the devils, the desolation, the damage, etc. The whole 70s, folklore of seventies in Scotland, dominated by country and western, very much so. And he was he was he was the man. And was he at this stage? I can't remember. Uh, was he um, uh, diagnosed as having a terminal illness, which he in fact never had for ten years? He thought he was going to die. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Is that right, wow. Dave? Do you remember? I don't know. Yeah, he was, they, they told him he had a terminal, uncurable illness, which affected, obviously, the way he thought and the way he wrote right, and the right. music he produced. This was... Well, that was exactly the man that I met there. It was 94 when I think he did the first American recordings with... Um, Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin, that's right. Uh, yes, and, and, and there he was... Indeed, but all that the man in black. representing all your family when you met yes, him. Was, it was, was he a disappointment? Or was he, was, oh, no, was he, he was yeah. absolutely glorious. He was... He was like he came, like he had been chipped off of Mount Rushmore. Yeah, yeah. yeah it yeah. really, the, the whole, I mean, that's what he looked like, that's what he felt like. He felt like he came from prehistory. He actually felt like you could reach out, this is the dawn of time here. <laughs> it really was yeah. tangible to me, and it could be the projection thing that we all do, and your fantasies yeah. go on to these people, but um, no, he was a rock solid, deeply. Uh, he was, I mean, the way, the way he talked about how insane he was when he was a young man and all the chaos and the drugs and the nearly being killed by an ostrich and then crawling into the cave. I mean, he will go through his whole story with you and it is just mind-blowing. That, never mind the music and Elvis and all those things. I mean, you know, there's only, there's only so many of the greats that have ever existed and to get a chance to actually sit down and meet one of them and for him to offer me a plum, by the way, out of nowhere. Would you like a plum? Oh, I'll have a plum with you then, Johnny Cash. I suppose it's also um, when they get so to yeah, their I mean, age. It's just... 
They've just, they just don't care, do they, oh, when they're that age? No, Because <laughs> yeah. there's nothing you can say that's going to spoil Johnny Cash's day. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, it's Johnny he Cash. Care. He's still Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever you ask people that age, they said to ask a completely honest, this completely honest answer. I just yes. wanted to, just to, to interject at this point, I don't know where we are chronologically, but at one point you break your arm. I, I mentioned this earlier on, this whole idea of being kind of carried feet first out of assignments. You're at a rock festival, taking so many drugs that you, you slipped up and broke your arm, and broke your arm so badly that the first diagnosis was that it might have to be amputated. Yes. Was that right? Was your right arm <laughs> I need, the, the arm I you need broke to say, with? for a start, this is what half an E can do for you. <laughs> half an E three pints of cider and I am in hospital <laughs> but yes it was the Reading Festival and um, I've been reviewing I think I think the charlatans who came out forgot to have my tea took some took some drugs not, not very happen. many yeah. um, fell over on a curb I literally just fell over on a curb and bust my arm the, the arm just sliced on the pavement here it split into it completely went in the, the other direction ambulances well one had to be called and um, the diagnosis was that you've not only bust your arm in half, you've, um, you've really badly damaged the nerve. So, you know, it's not looking too good for you actually, for this, you know, coming back to life. So we'll see how it goes over the next seven months. And it did take seven months for the nerve to, to get, have any movement in it at all. So I, I, I wrote with one finger for, for seven months and just kept on writing because I wasn't insured, obviously, because that would be far too sensible, wouldn't it? <laughs> But yeah, that was 99, but Madonna would have been... Yes, you're right, no, Madonna roughly. was 98. 98, rightly. yeah. How did you find Madonna? Uh, Madonna, well, the, for a start, I expected Madonna to waltz through the door if she just, as if she'd just come off of the, the, the Vogue video. I really was expecting the conical bra, I was expecting, <laughs> you know, the dancers, all that kind of thing, and she had a... She was, once again, tiny, um, a kind of two pleats on either side, no makeup whatsoever, wearing a ream of cloth and the first thing that she said was you'll have to excuse me I'm wearing my blanket and she was absolutely she was beamed from 1974 can, she was an earth mother home. scenario um, they say you just look like you've you, 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 you been the campfire at Glastonbury at three o'clock in the morning where is the fabulous Madonna it was it was very odd you described her as being like a, a TP dwelling gypsy on her way to a knit your own wheelbarrow workshop that's exactly that's exactly you remember that phrase it was so funny <laughs> but, but what, what was fascinating is that that was a, a moment in the book when you first encounter someone who isn't kind of supernatural somehow. That you, you're thinking she's yes. actually very, very old. She had brought herself down to earth, unlike Prince, who was still the other. She had brought herself yeah. deliberately down to earth because she was in her spiritual phase yeah. and she wanted to engage with the, the simple things in life, man. Uh, love and, you know, peace, man. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it was her no possessions phase. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, this was not the Madonna that she, I think, went on, went back to be <laughs> but that particular phase and of course you know there wasn't any way of actually knowing who was going to walk through the door because you in, in, in those days you weren't constantly being updated you weren't exposed to anyone like you would be now I mean you would have the the press release and you would have maybe the, the, the album artwork but you would still expect her to be the same Madonna as she always was because you didn't have any everyday visual no, updates coming at you it, like you have now. It's really See? interesting. This is I, you, you just did it there where you talked about Madonna. You said two two plates and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I always used to think that the, big, the the main value of the star interaction was the thing that people told you when they came back from the interview. 
the thing that they told you straight away. She was wearing a so-and-so, <laughs> and she smells of so-and-so. Yeah. Well, you know, what yeah. they say is the same bollocks as politicians yeah. talk about. You know, <laughs> it's being with them and just getting, actually getting the chance to just inspect them. Because very often you're distracted by your, your desperate efforts to engage in conversation with them. Yes. But actually, what you'd just like to do is sit down and look at them <laughs> while they talk Completely. to somebody else. Because in yeah. fact, what they're saying, you're, you're obsessed with this idea you've got to get a quote. Yes. The quote's what's going to appear on the cover. Yes. The quote's what's going to make your interview different. For It's not. It's, they're saying the same thing to everybody. Yes, and they are, they absolutely are just giving you the party line, so you kind of drift. The best moment... Which is why you end up saying something really yeah. silly to try and snap them back into, you know, an engagement with yeah. you yeah. somewhere along the line. I used to pray for the people's <laughs> mobile phones to go off. And suddenly their phone would go off. And they'd suddenly very briefly talk to somebody else while they were talking to you. And it revealed in the real so much voice. about in, in their the real, real voice. voice. Yeah. Fascinating. And then you're allowed to say, who was that? Yeah, yeah. And then you get some kind then of idea of... And you hope exactly. it was their mum or their son yeah, or absolutely, something. Absolutely. <laughs> something Monday. So that's the stuff that smash, going back to smash hits. That's yeah. the stuff that smash hits always grasped was yeah. when people talked about the things of their life, the elements of their life that were like other people's lives. Yes. I've got a bike, or I, you know what I mean? My <laughs> yes. mum plays golf. You know. Yes, exactly. That's the stuff was, that ended up in headlines. It is. I interviewed Peter Gabler once, and his, his phone went off, and it was his dad, who was 90 years old. Wow. And his dad was out picking up litter. Because he found litter so offensive. And I thought this was that's fantastic. Very good. That tells you so everything you need this. to know about that's his That's the kind dad. of household that Peter Gabriel comes yeah. from. I liked him even more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. This I thought was just interesting because, you know, if, if you're um, um, old crones of the age of myself and David, you grew up listening to Led Zeppelin and therefore accorded them a certain amount of respect. And, you know, somebody your age has rightly absolutely no respect for them whatsoever. And so they're wheeled into this interview for, I don't know what it was, was it for the enemy? It was for the enemy, the enemy? Yeah. And you're asking them these really barbed and really hilarious questions, just massively <laughs> taking the piss out of them, you know. And how did well, they respond just, to that? Well, I mean, well, you see, the thing is, I was led to believe that these were the most serious and earnest and miserable and boring and um, uh, gargantuanly egotistical men on earth. So therefore, oh God, they're sending me, and of course, you know, I wasn't exactly the biggest uh, aficionado, shall we say, of the music, although I did think Kashmir was fantastic. Yes. Um, But the best thing was Robert Plant's initial reaction when I just said, as you would just polite his heavy heart, hello, I'm Sylvia from the enemy. Hello, we're we're Robert and uh, Jimmy from the 1970s. And I couldn't believe it was an immediate joke. And it went on like this, and because they, because, because these two, have, I don't think they ever have to this day ever really spoken about life inside the madness of the most debauched rock and roll band probably ever. They just never have spoken about what really it was all about. Other people have written the books, etc. But they only ever talked about the music. I mean, please. So I was desperately trying to get through. And by the way, they were only talking about their new album in 1996 or whenever it was, as if anybody was actually was bothered about that. So they, um, so so I was listening. Oh, go on. What, what about what about the, the the private jets? Come on. What about this? And and they eventually did manage to think that this was really quite funny, and they got into the spirit of it, which I wasn't expecting at all. I would say, you know, it's been quite a life, eh, boys? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Robert, Robert Plantin, steady on, old girl, I can still play tennis. <laughs> just, just, he was 49, and I thought he was absolutely prehistoric when I think about it now. I'm older than that now. It's really weird. It's really weird. But they turned out to be very, very charming. And he said, this better come out with the tone, with, with the tone 
that this interview is being conducted by and he said we're getting back into our spaceship now with the rest of the hobgoblins <laughs> and, off, and off he went because obviously I saw cartoons before my eyes and, um, and how could you not they, I, loved, I loved them for that I really did love them for that they were great this is just a moment in the book where you talk about I suppose it's, part of the book is a kind of elegy for, for, the, for the slow, inevitable, painful decline of the, of the, of the music press that we all work for and this is one of the reasons that you think things, that decline was accelerated, which is the gossip magazines came in. One of which was invented by David Hepworth, in fact. <laughs> so there we are. It's your fault, Dave. And, uh, but this was their, their, their agenda was very tabloid, wasn't it? And that changed what, the way the PRs protected stars. The protection them. started, yeah. the, the, the gossip started, the co- a corporate mindset took over. I don't know. I mean, some, something happened around the millennium. And all the publishing houses started, to my mind, to start to be, maybe it was the maybe it was the internet was just beginning or something. But there seemed to be a blind, a blind panic somewhere along the line. Everyone started dumbing things down immediately. It was almost like it happened overnight, and everyone started to capitulate to this idea that it's just about sell, 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 sell. It doesn't matter about the quality of of, of the magazine anymore. It's just how big it is. Um, these. They could even have existed on their own anyway without the actual proper music press becoming like them, but the, the, the real music press started to become like them as well. I don't think that, that they had to. Why did the enemy suddenly decide that cocaine and uh, the bosoms on the cover of, of the NME was a really good idea? Why did they become like this? It, it is mind-blowing to me. Something really happened. The corporate mindsets that started to really take over... Um, they should have been separate entities. If everyone was suddenly after loads of gossip about the celebs and the stars, could it? Could it? Could they have just left the you know the music press to get on with you know it being about the libertines? Get on with it being about it. It just all started to completely change around. And I remember Noel Gallagher shouting at the top of his voice in two thousand and one, "The man has taken over the world," <laughs> and it really seems like something something really bizarre happened. And I think. An economist could actually have a better idea of what happened there because, and I think that goes for the whole of, of, of the world anyway, to be honest with you. Something really just started to go out of, of the world in terms of any risks being taken. The creative industries started to be in decline then, I think, as well, and much more so now. I mean, this is a long time ago. This was 2001 or two or so. But it's just, bec- it's just become more and worse we're going to get on to Beyonce, I think. But we, you, you needed the pop press to try and make sense of people, you know, to try and you know give them a three-dimensional kind of shape and to, and to, yeah, to have the access to. That's just advertising, isn't it? Yeah. I know, and, and I think it's really interesting. I, I, we haven't just put that in so you can um, so we can repeat your wonderful word of advice to her, which was Beyonce never marry a man called <laughs> Mr. Castle. <laughs> Beyonce Castle. <laughs> genuinely funny Again, joke. I was desperate. So funny. <laughs> There's a veneer coming up. That me. was her opening question. <laughs> there were lots of questions. It was a bit of advice. You know. <laughs> but I think Beyonce is just an example of that whole new world. People that you're allowed very little access to. And also they're bigger than pop music. You know, they're represented in fashion. They're represented in fragrance. And they've, the whole empires are built yeah, up around. Yeah, it's like the music is, is just a front for, uh, for, well, you know, how many products can they actually, 
know, represent and, um, and, and be sponsored by. But I remember having a conversation with her in 2003. Um, Crazy in Love was just becoming huge. She was newly solo. She was already spectacularly wealthy and famous because of what Destiny's Child had done. I mean, I mean she's so much bigger now, but she was huge then anyway. And saying to her, why would you want to do Pepsi commercials? Why would you want to do L'Oreal? Why would you do all these things? You don't, you don't need the money. I don't really get it. Madonna was doing the same at that point. And she just looked at me as if I was insane. It just makes you a bigger star. It just makes you a bigger star. And I thought, I genuinely don't get this. Because you're diluting your fabulousness with something that's just advertising. But she's done... all the same thing But okay, ten years later, she's still doing all right. Well, exactly. You know, (laughs) who's proved to be right? Beyonce or anybody? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if there's anybody who's a loser here... I do think (laughs) the the key point about people like this and the decline of the music press, or any press, is... Beyonce, what media does Beyonce need? None. She will never do another interview. She doesn't need, you know, even if MTV still mattered, she'd be way bigger than MTV. Oh, exactly. There is no media in the world. I mean, possibly Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, she does her own documentaries. The media used to be really powerful because it was the only way to reach people. Yes, exactly. It's not anymore. There are millions of ways to reach people. Yeah. Uh, Many of which, you know, she's, she's used. Britney was just an example of just how um, there's a brilliant description actually of how how wet her responses are can I find it <laughs> so funny it's that uh, her responses were yeah responses not so much wet um, uh, not so much weedy as 15 million dandelion puffballs blowing their spores across a grassy wetland the size of Oklahoma <laughs> That's, isn't that great? That's how, that's how weedy her response That's how but, weedy But when you interviewed her, and I've had this experience too, you interviewed her on the phone, in fact, and there was a, a loop of about three or four of her minders' agents I think there was four of them. I think listening was, yeah. in, telling her what to say. I know. It was, you know, Brittany possibly was quite unwell. Who's to say, but anyway, 2011, I think she wasn't quite in Vegas yet. No, it was a year before she went to Vegas. Um, but she was, you know, I think the... I think the the, the most highly paid most highly paid um, I think she was on a X Factor or something like that in America. Anyway, she was absolutely bonkers, bonkers beyond bonkers. Still, the, the highest paid and the most um, uh, visual visual. She, she was at the centre of American culture still. Anyway, four um, of her people are on the end of the phone. I think a UK PR, her US PR, her lawyer, and her manager. The questions were pre-approved. And anything to do with anything that might have happened in her real life, as if we'd never seen those photographs of her, you know, with her shaven head, battering the car. It was like none of that had ever, ever existed. She'd never been divorced. Let's not talk about anything that's any, any way real. And as she was talking to me like this on the end of the phone, I could hear whispering like this on the end of the phone. And, and one, of the, one of the magazine's most weedy attempts at trying to have an emotional response from her was to say what kind of tricks do you have to cheer yourself up on a on a stressful day and I just heard this male voice just say Jacqueline and Britney Spears just said Jacqueline yeah. and I thought <laughs> it's all it's gone, it's gone. I thought I'm, it's I, kind I'm of funny, off isn't it? the I'm glory, off I'm gone in the know? glory days of Smash Hits one of the one of those common kind of affectionate jokes made about pop stars was they're mad <laughs> Now, <laughs> well, do you know what? You that's a very say good that. point. That's Sorry? a very, it's a very good point because because yes, there's they're mad, but no, this is actually the wrong mad. You wouldn't be allowed to say that about anybody. Now, you know, this is Cypress Hill, and I, 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 
so fascinated by the bit. There are several sort of moments when you meet hip hop and rap stars, you know, and that's the most intimidating of the lot because they use their chauvinism and their homophobia all the time and their general, um, you know, hip hopness to intimidate, particularly white women journalists, you know. And it must have been very tough dealing with those guys. Well, to be honest with you, in a way, other than the homophobia with this one particular guy, they were, they were a lot more up for the caper than I ever imagined that they would be. And there's something about being a, a, fem- a white female journalist with a really ridiculous accent that, that kind cool. of... That People kind are of, fascinated by your accent, they, they? They, they, I mean, really, because they were like... <laughs> I remember the Wu-Tang Clan, you from Scotland, Scotland Yard? I went, nah, you're, you're all right. <laughs> you're all right. <laughs> Put your weed away, you're all right. <laughs> but, they were, but they were very charming. And so you could take a band like this, you were desperately earnest and serious. And through the course of our conversations, we'd find out that one of them was a huge Phil Collins fan, which I just thought was hilarious. So we'd be talking about in the air tonight, and he was going, damn right, I love Phil Collins, yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, yeah, and, and, when, and one of them was a huge Ricky Martin fan. I can shake my butt to him all night long. And I mean, I, mean it was, I don't think that they would have a conversation like that with, with a, a, a very serious hip-hop aficionado, you know? So it did, I think it did work to my advantage in a way. And, and they, were really, they were really interesting, those dudes. They had had insane lives, you know, really insane lives. And they were prepared to be real. Yeah. There wasn't any people getting in the way there. I mean, they were actually just talking to you about what it was like to grow up in a south-central LA, and that was hairy, and that's a story. You know, they were great actually, apart from the homophobia in them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have sent you on this, uh, on this, you uh, did, this yes. trip. Yes, you did. It was a fantastic piece. And she was just starting to unravel desperately. What uh, what year are we talking about? 2000, March 2007. 2007. And she'd lost a lot of weight and she was just getting um, heavily into drinking vast amounts. And the thing was, it was just the drink, just the drink, but it was just the drink. She was not yet back with Blake. Um, because you spent, again, that great thing of uh, I was able to spend a good couple of days with her, no problem. Went out, out with many meals for her, same meals. It was, you know, morsels for her. Um, I would rather, I would rather drink than eat. Oh, what's in this? Too many calories? Ooh. She was really obsessed with, with, with her weight, basically. Um, but yeah, it's all about being fit. So it's a fitness thing. It's a fitness thing. She was screwy in the head, but we all know that about her in terms of when it comes to her uh, anorexia and bulimia. Um, but she was physically fit enough at that point. She was boisterous, you know, she was funny. She was very funny. She would tell her stories about being out of her head like it was just a comedy caper, as you, as anybody would tell a story like that when you were 23. You wouldn't believe what I did. Then I ended up in the hospital. Oh, I can't believe it. I mean, she was really like that more than anything. But then on the, the day, the night that she got very drunk and she was very insecure with herself that particular day for whatever reason about some New York girls who were taking the, taking the arse out of her tattoo there because, look, she's a lesbian, oh my God, she's drunk and she's a lesbian. And um, Amy was upset about that for some reason. And she went home, I met her the next day to have her photograph taken for the word and she had this lattice work of scratches up her arms, really deep, they were bad. So, have you got any makeup for my arm? Oh, I don't know what I've done. I had a blackout. I can't believe it. I hate when that happens. And I said, mm, What happened? Did you fall over a wall or something? And she went, That's probably exactly what I did. I put it for a fag and I fell over. But it was definitely self harm. You can actually see it still. You can see those crosses yeah. like this. I mean, that is, you know, something happened to her that night. And I did feel really bad because. You know, I was there with her PR. And where was her manager? Who was looking after her? It just felt like. 
it's just Amy, she's just a bit drunk, she'll be all right. And she wasn't all right. She wasn't all right, you know. I did feel bad about that. Was she very like sort of Janis Joplin and Sandy Denny, someone who's just a brilliant technician, a brilliant singer, but just couldn't deal with everything else that came with it? Was that that part of it, do you think? The tabloids absolutely have got a lot to answer for when it comes to her, definitely. I mean, 40-odd... Um, photographers outside your door every single day and they're right outside your door they're not in the bushes, they're right on your door yeah. actually saying come out Amy, if you give us a picture we'll give you a bottle of vodka, come out, we'll yeah. get you fags we'll get you this, we'll get you that and that was every day for months and months yeah. and indeed years Horrendous. I mean after, after that Mark I don't think she did all that very many interviews because she got back yeah. with Blake in the summertime and then that was pretty much the end of it because yeah. the big drugs came in yeah. so she was lost to us after that so from one person who couldn't deal with fame to a couple... Oh, give us more. <laughs> Bring it on. It and with the money. Such a fantastic... This is pretty much the last chapter in this terrific book. And it's so funny because it's, you, you interviewed... They've got their fragrance out, which they're promoting. You're flown first class... That was put the one and only time I was ever... to the airport yeah. in a limo. It's absolutely... The description is the just detail. just preposterous. It's 2007, just before the financial collapse. <laughs> and you have to submit, am I right in thinking, ten questions that are all fragrance-related. All fragrance-related. Which are then whittled down to five acceptable Whittled down to five, questions. yes, and there was myself and uh, four other members of the European press. There was about... I don't know, 20, 20 little pockets of five journalists, I think, over the course of two days just being wheeled in to advertise for them, basically, right across Europe and America. And for, for this huge privilege, you were put up in the Beverly Hills Hotel. It was so lavish. It was just hysterical. I mean, I mean, these two were perched on two, you know, kind, kind of, well, not quite their thrones, but it was just this beautiful... Um, French kind of uh, sweets that I think Marilyn Monroe had once wandered around or something. It was insane levels of privilege. We asked the most banal questions it was possible to ask. But we were all professional journalists. There was someone there from Vanity Fair. I felt even more sorry for him than for myself. He was called Georges and he was German and he was really pissed off. So we did our questions uh, 20 minutes, what nonsense. The biggest revelation. And then you were allowed to David eat Beckham a meal had, in, in the presence yes, of. Yes, in, yeah. yes. Then we had a meal in the presence of David and Victoria, um, as if it was in, in, in this kind of marquee, <coughs> as if they were sultans, you know. And, and then they individually went round and shook our hands and we had our photograph taken with them. And then they, they bid us adieu and off they went. We'll have to see the boys. Thank you so much for coming. And then within, within months, they had sold billions, billions worth of uh, fragrances right across the entire planet. So therefore, you know, you're, you're in advertising and absolutely nothing else at that point. As funny as it was, and I did used to have a massive crush on David Beckham. I know I'm not alone there. But, um, but, but that is what things have become. I mean, there's so much revenue that has been made right across... Um, well, let's face it, you know, rock and roll, it's now, it's now the entertainment industry. This, this isn't even music, for crying out loud. But, um, but so, many, so many people are involved in fragrances now. Culture did become an ephemeral waft at some point. The latest one's Michael Bublé, for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, <he've... laughs> The book does sort of end on a, a, a rather sad note, really. It's a here where you talk, saying, we live in a spineless, reactionary and hideously po-faced time. <laughs> Yeah, and in fact, it's, I was quite angry that day. At the day. very end, there's a little chart that you can add to of all the magazines that have gone to the wall. <laughs> and uh, I think there's a little bit underneath where you can add... Here we are. Um, 
<laughs> yes, magazines we have loved in my journalistic lifetime in Britain alone, now decomposing in the dumper. To list them all. And then a space here to write the names of the next lot as they come in. Hours of fun guaranteed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, obviously, throughout the book, you go from the kind of glorious comedy capers of the Smash Hits era to this uh, cynical clickbait of... of um... It is. It's desperately cynical times. We're just not trusted. We're kept at arm's length. It's the magazines. No one wants to pay for them anymore. Um, but it's you know culture will always change the young it's, it's up to the young come on, the young what do you want from your culture they've got this incredible freedom they call their online world all of it all of it I'm astounded that this isn't the most insanely glorious and creative time there's ever been to be young to be honest with you that really astounds me but don't you feel any about <laughs> Oh, with the Beckhams. Oh, no, I just, it was comedy capers to me. It it's just hilarious. had to be comedy Chaps capers. richly comedy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I was complicit in an advertising process there. Oh, yes. But if I didn't... I mean, I mean, seriously, it's either that or I'm living under Waterloo Bridge at that point. I mean, when it came to um, that particular interview, I seriously was... <laughs> I'm so a massive David Beckham fan <laughs> many years before that. And I interviewed him for the cover of The Face at one point. But no, to me, that is an insight into a world that needs to be seen up close. And I hope that I've actually... Um, you know, we can't just let that go on. I mean, I hope that I've actually just let, let everybody see that this is, this is what you're actually buying into. I hope that it's more than just the surface of it. Otherwise, it, it would never have been translated into a book chapter. I mean, what was written was a whitewash. But what I've written in the book is the reality of the situation. And that's where I think its worth will be, hopefully. Clearly, I will never do anything like that. <laughs> no, no magazine, no, no, no one from a fragrance company is ever going to send me to take the piss out of them like that ever again. <laughs> I think you, you, you could safely say that you've, you've lived through what Smashes might have described as the glory years TM, because uh, that, that low note is not represented in this book, I have to say. It is fantastically funny, and it's, it's simply a riveting read, unbelievably well-sustained throughout. And, Sylvia, I'm sure we'll be easily persuaded to sign copies of it, because there are copies outside. In fact, David's book is there too, as is Derek's. Yes. So, um, thanks so much for coming along. It was absolutely riveting and fascinating. Thank you very much, fellas. Sylvia Patterson. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by The Word. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.